Open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. If you're new or you're visiting, we are studying through the Gospel of Luke, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Our text is Luke, chapter 21, beginning in verse 37, and we'll continue into chapter 22, verse 23. Our theme is the Lord's Supper, and our title is The Lasting Supper. And so let's look at that, starting in chapter 21, verse 37. And in the daytime, Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. And then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Let's pray. Lord, use these words this morning. The words that we've read that are inspired by your spirit, spoken by Jesus, use them to uh, open up our hearts to the joy and love of our Savior for us. If we're Christians here this morning, Lord, I pray that we would enter in fully to all the things that you want to teach us. And Lord, for any that are not saved this morning, any who have not really given their heart to you, that they would be drawn to you by cords of love, by bonds of love. That they would see you lifted up for their sins, themselves as needy sinners, you as their Savior, so that they might live forever with you and with us in eternity. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Leonardo da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper, is for many Christians the clearest image they have of Jesus Christ's last meal with his disciples. Although it is considered great art, da Vinci's painting is bad history. All of the details in the painting are inaccurate. For example, the painting shows daylight outside the window, but the Last Supper took place at night. 
The figures are seated about regular tables on benches, whereas Jesus and his disciples reclined around a low table on pillows or couches. Da Vinci shows 13 Renaissance Italian men in Oriental costumes in a Florentine palace, not a Jewish celebration of Passover in an upper room in Palestine. To make things worse, Dan Brown wrote the best-selling fiction novel called The Da Vinci Code. It's soon to be a big Hollywood blockbuster. In it, he claims that Christianity was founded on a conspiratorial cover-up. He presents the theory that the church has conspired for centuries to hide evidence that Jesus was a mere mortal, married to Mary Magdalene, and had children whose descendants live in France. Now, we know that can't be true because if he did, they would live in Italy. But anyway, (laughs) Da Vinci supposedly wanted to expose the cover up, but he feared the church. And so he encoded clues in paintings like his Last Supper in the painting. If you look closely, Mary Magdalene is said to be disguised as the Apostle John. (laughs) Adding to all this confusion caused by da Vinci and now Dan Brown, many of us have our own ideas about the Last Supper. If you were raised in a church, especially the Catholic Church, but even a Protestant church, your thinking about the Last Supper was shaped by its teaching. As much as possible, we want to set aside our preconceived ideas and impressions about the Last Supper Jesus shared with his first followers. Let's confine our thinking to the biblical account the only accurate source of information about what took place and why. One thing you immediately notice is that although it was Jesus' last supper, he meant it to be a lasting supper. Twice he said that it looked forward to his return to earth to establish the kingdom of God. And then he told his followers to go on celebrating the supper in remembrance. As we look at this last, lasting Lord's Supper, we'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, the lasting supper reminds you to make ready for the Lord's coming. And number two, the lasting supper reminds you to remember why the Lord came. We're going to take a look at the supper itself and then go back and discuss the betrayal of Jesus. In chapter 22, verses 7 through 20, the lasting supper reminds you to make ready for the Lord's coming. When you read and then reread verses 7 through 20 of chapter 22, something that jumps out at you is the idea of preparing or making ready. You see the word prepare twice in verses 8 and 9, the words make ready in verse 12, and the word prepared in verse 13. As the disciples made ready for the Last Supper, we are being reminded to make ready for the Lord's return. I hope to show you how this morning. Now, in verse 7, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. Passover was the commemoration and the celebration of the freeing of the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. As God announced that he would free them, he said that a death angel would smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. The only way that you could avoid the death of the firstborn was to sacrifice a lamb and put a sign of its blood on your doorpost. And the Lord said to them, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hence, Passover. 
Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are different holidays falling on successive days. However, due to their closeness, they are usually treated as one festival. So sometimes it would be called Passover, uh, speaking of the particular meal, but other times it referred to the entire feast, including the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jews would eat unleavened bread for seven days and leaven or yeast was not to be admitted to the household for seven days. There's a lot of symbolism there, mostly in terms of it, it because they had to leave is, uh, Egypt in haste. Uh, they didn't have time really to see their bread rise. And so unleavened uh, bread reminds them of the haste with which they left Egypt and their deliverance by God. Uh, having the death angel having passed over them because of the blood of the lamb. And so verse eight, Jesus said to Peter and John, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. Now, preparing involved a lot more than just shopping or even the normal amount of house cleaning. We would consider this maybe a spring cleaning. Those of you who, you know, once a year really just tear your house up. And, and just clean that thing out, bring a hose inside and just, you know, get the carpet up and anyway, whatever. Now, they had to remove all traces of leaven from the house to avoid the risk of eating leaven in the seven days of the festival. Leaven, yeast, you know how small yeast is? Pretty small. And so this was a, this was a huge undertaking. The, this amounted to an extensive search and cleaning. No crumbs or particles could be anywhere in the house. Uh, and, and I mean, this is, you know, this is the really spring clean. This is when you don't just clean off the top of the stove. You pop that thing open and you get what's under there. You ever looked under your stove? If you haven't for a while, I'd recommend that you get a hazmat team out there. <laughs> a lot of stuff falls down into your stove that just, it's nasty. And, uh, and so this was a huge, huge undertaking. And so, so really, even though the word, I already mentioned the word prepare and prepared and make ready, the whole focus of this passage from Luke's point of view is making ready, preparing for this feast. We might stop and ask ourselves how much we prepare to hear the word of the Lord. We sometimes talk about studying the Bible for ourselves or reading it or coming to Bible study as a feast. Uh, we were praying this morning before service, and one of the brothers said, Lord, just make this morning's Bible study a sumptuous feast for our soul. And it's, it's important, I think, that we do prepare ourselves through prayer and waiting on the Lord. A lot of times I'll come to the Word of God and think, I'm just not getting anything out of that. Or you can come to church and think, man, there was just nothing there. Gene's really lost it. And a lot of times, really, the Lord would be speaking to us, hey, it's how much have I prepared to receive from the Lord? How did I, did I get into it? Did I do some background reading? Did I, did I read and reread the passage? You know, not to put a trip on anybody, but one thing that you can do, because we do a, a kind of systematic expository teaching, uh, in the bulletin outline every week, there's a, an idea of where we're going to be next week. And you can be reading and rereading that passage for yourself in a way of preparation. And I found for my own life, whether I'm teaching or not, if I do that, I get a whole lot more out of it than if I just come cold to it. Now, there's nothing wrong if you just get up in the morning and you think, whoa, it's Sunday. And you run to church and you've made no preparation whatsoever and you barely have, you know, brushed your teeth and all. That's fantastic. We want you to come. Don't get me wrong. Come just as you are, prepared or not. 
But there is a suggestion here that we prepare hard for the way that the Lord wants to speak to us. And verse 9, they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished room, upper room, there make ready. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. First of all, there were tens of thousands of pilgrims in Jerusalem. And so Peter and John say, okay, where do you want us to make ready? What's the, what's the situation? And he says, well, just go into the city and you'll see a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now the commentators, they try and say that it would be unusual for a man to be carrying a pitcher of water. This was woman's work. But we're still talking about one guy among maybe 50 or 60,000 people. We, we went to Disneyland a few weeks ago. This would be like somebody saying, your hotel key is with one guy carrying a man purse. And so just go to Disneyland. Just go to Disneyland. And when you see this guy carrying a man purse, go up to him and say, where's my hotel ticket? Well, I'm sorry. I'm going to go through AAA. Uh, I mean, I just I want to have my ticket ahead of time. And so it's really a quite a fascinating situation. And then think about this for a moment. Jesus was just hours away from arguably the most important events in his life and ministry. His whole mission and the fulfillment of many specific prophecies was at stake. Yet he said it all depended upon his two disciples running into a man carrying a pitcher of water. And then following him and, and having favor with the master of that house. One of the things that it reminds me is that God is at work in the smallest details of your life. And sometimes we don't, well, we don't remember it and we don't look for it. We, we, we understand that God might be doing big things, large things, grand things, but we don't pay attention to small things that are happening. Maybe what's playing on the radio in the background or what Bible study was on the radio or or, or little things like that by which God might be speaking to us and showing us different things. And I think we need to be people that attend more to details, small details in our lives, because I believe that God wants to and is speaking to us all of the time in, in various metaphors and similes and pictures and allegories and things like that. And so the Lord involved in these minute details of your life. We aren't told anything about the owner of the house with the upper room. But one thing we can say is this. It was unusual that his upper room would still be available on the day that people were beginning to prepare for the feast. Places to celebrate Passover were at a premium in Jerusalem. Remember, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands perhaps of pilgrims were filling the city I mean, this is like Super Bowl Sunday if it were in Hanford. The rooms would fill up very quickly, and it'd be hard to find a place. That's why I love these people who, like, I haven't been to the big Fresno Fair, but uh, a lot of times these fairs, you know, if you own property around the fair, you fence it off and you charge uh, for parking because people, you know, they don't want to pay the fair parking, and you're right there, and so, hey, you can make five bucks a car or whatever. And so if you had a a large upper room in Jerusalem around the time of Passover, 
You rented it out if you weren't using it yourself for your own family. And so here's a guy, the very day of the feast, and, and, and his room is just sitting there available, and it's not because he couldn't find clients for it. He must have had some leading from the Holy Spirit to keep his upper room available. And if any of his friends or family had asked him what he was doing, they would have thought he was crazy. I mean, this is a great opportunity to scalp tickets, as it were. I mean, you've got, I've got the last, I mean, I could just see the guy, I don't know how they advertise in those days, but he was, I have the last room in Jerusalem. What do you give me for? I mean, he could auction this off on eBay if they had it at the time, you know, I mean, a room at Passover, this was a valuable commodity and yet something was leading him to wait on the Lord, whether it was a dream or something like that. We don't know. It reminds us that we cannot always follow our own logic or common sense, but we too need the leading of the Lord. Doesn't mean we go out of our way to do silly, stupid things or that we blame uh, stupid things on God. But sometimes things line up, they line up physically, they line up economically. They, uh, this makes the most sense from one point of view, but have we prayed about it? Is God leading in that way because he knows the future? He knows what he wants to do, and we don't. And so you can't just go on human logic and human reason. You have to factor in the leading of the Lord. Verse 13, so they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Again, there is this emphasis on preparation. And we're not told a whole lot about everything that they must have done. We, we can speculate about the cleaning and the shopping. We know that there was a basin of water and towel because Jesus would later use that to wash the disciples' feet. But there was a lot of preparation that went into that time of ministry that was going to take place between Jesus and his apostles. And it's a reminder to us that so much of ministry is preparation. Or it ought to be. Sometimes we have a tendency because we've done something so often or so many times, it becomes kind of second nature or we, we go on an autopilot with it. And, and we don't study as much or prepare as much or practice as much or, you know, we just kind of fly in by the seat of our pants really half the time. And, and it, it ought to be that we prepare more and more and more all the time. Getting ready. Maybe it's only a few minutes that we're going to be ministering to someone or in front of people or teaching a class or or doing whatever it is that God's called us to do. The, the shorter the time, really, the more the preparation. It's easy to talk. Uh, I, I can easily fit in this study in the 40 minutes that we have. But if you said, well, Gene, you only have 30 minutes or 20 minutes or 15 minutes. Well, then I'm going to have to study a lot more to figure out what I really need to say and what I don't need to say. And so preparation is really an important part of ministry. God honors our preparation and brings power to our ministry when we're prepared. Verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And then he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, this phrase, no longer until, was their way of saying, no longer to be done forever. Jesus was saying, 
this is the last Passover I'm going to eat because all that it symbolizes is going to find its fulfillment and then the kingdom of God is going to come. And so this is it. This is the last Passover never to be done again forever from God's point of view. Now, do people still celebrate Passover? Well, sure they do. But Jesus is telling us, hey, this is it. This is the end of Passover because it is going to be fulfilled and then the kingdom will come in the future. And so verse 17, then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. God was done with Passover and the feast of unleavened bread that followed it. Fifteen hundred years of ritual were ended that night. Jesus looked forward to a new feast, one that he would host when the kingdom of God was fully established on the earth. And so no more Passover. Ahead of me is a feast that will celebrate when the kingdom of God is established. We can read about it in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. At his second coming, Jesus holds what he describes as a marriage supper. Who's getting married? To describe the intimacy and strength of Jesus Christ's love for you, the Bible represents him as if he were a bridegroom and believers were his bride. When Jesus returns in his second coming, we return with him and there will be a feast. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb at which time we will dine together. And this is what Jesus was referring to. The Last Supper gave way to a lasting supper. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper. No more Passover, marriage supper in the future. In the meantime, there is this lasting ordinance in the church, the Lord's Supper, communion, an ordinance to practice while we wait for the Lord to return and hold the marriage feast. And so verse 19, he took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the gospel. God told Adam and Eve that if they sinned, they would surely die. The moment they sinned, they died. They began to die physically they died spiritually because you see them immediately knowing that they were separated from God, desiring to hide themselves, and they would have died eternally separated from God. God did something to save them from sin and death. He killed an animal in their place as their substitute, probably a lamb. Then he covered them with the skin of that sacrificial animal. It established once for all that your sin requires the death of an innocent substitute who can cover you so that you can have fellowship with God. God did something else in the garden. He promised our first parents that he would send someone into the human race to be our one final sacrifice and substitute. In other words, that animal or those animals that he had slain were symbolic of a person who would come. He called him the seed of the woman. And as the Bible unfolds, you find out that it is God come in human flesh. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's why when John the Baptist introduces Jesus, he looks at him and he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And a Jew would understand that, maybe not comprehend it, but understand that John was saying this person 
somehow in some sense is God's final sacrificial lamb that all of these other lambs from the Garden of Eden forward represent. And he will die for the sin of the world. He will be the final sacrifice, the full substitute, the one that we can put our trust in. And when Jesus died on the cross, it was in fulfillment of all of that symbolism. Every lamb from Adam to Moses for about 2,500 years, and then every Passover lamb for about 1,500 more years pointed to Jesus. Jesus was and is our Passover. When Jesus said of the bread, this is my body which is given for you, he meant that he was God come in human flesh in order that he might die as that sacrifice. And then verse 20, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The old covenant is the law of Moses that required the continual sacrificing of lambs. The new covenant is this once for all sacrifice of Jesus as God's final lamb. Up until the death of Jesus, it required oceans of lamb's blood through the centuries just to temporarily cover your sin so that you could approach God. Now the blood of Jesus would itself be a depthless ocean of cleansing sufficient for the sin of the whole world for whosoever will believe. Now we understand Jesus to be talking figuratively and symbolically. The bread and the wine did not mystically, magically turn into his body and blood. The Roman Catholic Church teaches otherwise they are wrong. Now, let me give you just one reason that they are wrong to think that Jesus ever meant to indicate the bread and wine are changed literally into his body and blood through the sacrifice of the mass. Here's just one reason. It's a sufficient reason. There are others, but here's a good one. Jews never drank blood. It was an absolute prohibition. A Jew was never to drink blood. They had all kinds of rules and regulations for how to properly drain the blood out of meat so that there was no danger they would ever drink blood. It was strictly prohibited. If the disciples thought Jesus meant in any way that the cup held blood, they would have refused to drink it or they would have put up an argument like they often did. A little time after this, after Jesus had died and risen from the dead, after he had ascended into heaven, after the disciples had been filled with the Holy Spirit. The apostle Peter is up on a rooftop and he's praying in the late afternoon. And he falls into a trance and he's hungry. And three times he has this vision of a sheet let down from heaven. And on it are all manner of animals that have been considered unclean in the Old Testament. Things that Jews are not allowed to eat. And in the vision, he's told to arise, kill and eat. And each time he says, no, I will not. I've never eaten anything like that. And I never will. And when he finally comes out of the trance, he's thinking, man, what was that? And then there's a knock on the door. Some people have come asking for Peter to come to the Gentile home of Cornelius to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter goes, a remarkable conversion takes place as the Holy Spirit falls upon those Gentiles. And Peter understands that God is telling him, hey, what I have declared clean is no longer unclean. And the gospel is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Okay, but notice, Peter refused to eat. 
He said, I'm not going to do that. I've been a Jew from my birth. There's no way I'm going to eat anything unclean. These guys would not have drank that cup if they had any idea that there was blood in it. And so whatever Jesus is saying, he's not saying this is going to mystically become my blood. And week after week, you're going to re-sacrifice me for your sins. This is a once for all sacrifice for sins on the cross. And Jesus says, hey, here's look at this cup and this bread. They represent the work that I've done for you. The bread and wine are symbols. Jesus is ending Passover and instituting what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. It is a lasting ordinance. It's to be practiced among believers as often as we choose to do so. Now, even though the Lord's Supper is a great time for reflection on what Jesus has done, what he's doing in our lives, from Luke's perspective, it is looking forward to his return. Passover was ended. A marriage supper is coming. And in the meantime, we share in these elements, the bread and the juice, to remind ourselves that the Lord is soon to return. Now, what's coming is a marriage supper. And, and there's a sense in which all of us can relate at some level to getting ready for a wedding. Now, I have to do a little preliminary talk here, though, because this is, this is really important stuff. And I, I'm not sure we're all up to speed with how, how much preparation really needs to go into a wedding. I say that because the 20 years I've lived here, I've noticed that just generally speaking, and especially among men, I've never lived in a place where people hated to get dressed up more. There is an absolute hatred about wearing anything that would be considered dressy if you're a man. A tie? Oh, oh man. The few times a person might wear a tie and then it comes off almost immediately. And, and be honest, most of you don't even know how to tie a tie anymore. Your ties are hanging in your closet pre-tied. And, and oh, seriously, I mean, you, you know, we laugh about it. People do not like to get dressed up around here. And so when I start talking about the preparation for a wedding, a lot of guys are checking out thinking, forget that, you know, got to wear that monkey suit. You know, I'm not into that. And, all, and, and they're just not into it. And so you need to forget about it. You need to act like you're a normal person, not somebody who lives here. And... Uh, and that weddings are a big deal that people and, you know, there's times people like to get dressed up. They want to get dressed up. I go through this. You know, people, I really don't care what people wear. Uh, I really don't. It's a, we're a come as you are church. We're not moving in any direction. Everybody just comfortable and casual. Lately, I've been wearing sport jackets during the winter. It's created a stir. It, it really has. Uh, people ask me, and, and you're probably thinking I'm talking about you. I am because dozens of people have asked me, what are you doing? What do you mean? What's with the sport jacket? What are you trying to prove? What's going on? Is this a, a directive from Chuck Smith or, or I mean, you know what? What are you doing? Are you the same person? Did you fall down, hurt your head? I mean, what, what's going on? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm wearing sport jackets right now. I might not do that. Now. Maybe I'll wear sweater vests next year. Who knows? But uh, or I mean, you know, I've I've been all over the map setting the spirit, the, the trends of fashion in the Kings County. But anyway, and so people generally, men especially, don't like to get dressed up. Then on top of that, I'm not done yet. On top of that, there is a general feeling among Christians that weddings should be downplayed. Uh, 
that that we don't really need to spend very much money or time or effort getting married. I mean, really, it's the it's the marriage that's important, not the wedding. And so why don't you just, you know, go to Harris Ranch and maybe they have a minister on duty that night. And and while you're having dinner, just have him pronounce you man and wife or something. You know, I mean, what why spend any money or why get into it? You need to defeat all of that kind of thinking to get into this analogy, because the analogy is this. Whether you're a man or a woman, you are to live as though you are an engaged bride to be. And you believe that it is your wedding day and you are preparing as if it were your wedding day today. And I think we can all lock into that. And, and whether I'm not, you know, hey, if you can't afford a big wedding, that's fine. If you can afford a big, that's great. I mean, this isn't about money or anything, but you, you, there's an idea that you want to you want to look all right. You, you want to look as good as you can and, and people help you to look good. And you you attend to the details of, of how you look and and, you know, the dress and the hair and the makeup and the blemishes and the, you know, the super glue. If your heel breaks or any of these kinds of I mean, you're you're really I mean, this is the day. This is the day you want to be at your best. And it's not a legalistic thing. It's, I mean, you're not forced to do that. You want to do that. You're in love with somebody. You want to look as beautiful as you can for that person. You want to surprise that person with your beauty on that day. That's the custom of not seeing your groom on the wedding day, which I don't care if you do that or not. I, I practic- I, actually, I wish you would because then it would be easier for the pictures. But, but, uh, but the idea behind it is that you're going to see me, and, and it's like you've never seen me before. I'm going to be so beautiful that you're gonna, it's just going to be the most amazing thing you've ever seen. And Jesus looks at you and he says, this is how you should live every day spiritually in preparation for my return. As if you believed I was coming back and you were doing everything you could spiritually to make yourself ready because you love me. And that's the picture that he has here. We need to constantly be ready. And really, I don't know if you think about communion that way or the Lord's Supper, but a huge part of the Lord's Supper is that it's our temporary feast with the Lord until this marriage supper takes place. And it is a looking forward to the Lord's return. Now I want to return briefly to the backstory of Judas' betrayal because it teaches us something important. The lasting supper reminds you to remember why the Lord came. Jesus acted with some stealth regarding the location of the last supper because he knew there was a plot to arrest him when the multitudes were not around and he was determined that it not take place that night until he wanted it to take place. He had a lot to say to his disciples. Verse 37 of chapter 21. In the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. And then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now Jesus had entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. Every day he came and taught, the people listened to him. It's interesting in our context because the Passover lamb always was always was brought into your house several days before it was actually sacrificed. And during those days, you would examine it for spots and blemishes and imperfections because it had to be just the right kind of lamb for the sacrifice. Jesus is fulfilling that Passover symbolism. He's saying, hey, guys, here I am. Listen to me. Watch me. See if you can find any spot, any blemish, any imperfection in me. And in the end, they could not. Even Pilate said, I find nothing wrong with this man that I might accuse him. 
And the only way they could accuse him is they had false witnesses lie about him. And so it's a very interesting fulfillment of the Passover symbolism. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, chapter 22, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. These are the religious leaders of Israel. They kept all outward rules and rites and rituals and regulations, but inwardly they feared the people and not God. And they were murderers. They were the spiritual leaders of Israel and they were murderers. They wanted to kill the son of God. They prepared their homes meticulously, but not their hearts. It's amazing what can happen in the name of religion. And when we talk about biblical Christianity, we are not at all talking about religion. Religion. I mean, people say, well, yeah, look at what religion has done to the world. Well, sure. It's terrible. Religion's the worst thing that ever happened to the world, whether it's it's in the name of Christianity or or Islam or any of the other religions that are seeking world domination and terror and all of these things. We're not about religion. We're about having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. These are the religious men, and this is where religion leads you to. Verse three, Satan entered Judas surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Satan entered Judas. How could that be? Well, Judas was not saved. He was not a believer. He was numbered with the twelve, but he didn't have a new nature. A lot of people attend church. They even serve in the church. They might even be pastors, but they have never been born again. It's radical that Judas was not just demon-possessed, as bad as that is. He was Satan-possessed. Satan himself entered into him. Now, you might think this is extreme, but I don't think it is. It's a picture of what you really are if you're not a Christian. If the Lord isn't your Lord, then you serve the devil. You may as well be possessed by him because the result will be the same. Now, I'm sure this is found objectionable to people. I'm not demon possessed. I'm not Satan possessed. You know, but here's the idea. You, you, you're not independent. You have to serve someone. And if you're not serving the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't given your heart and life to him, then you are serving in the kingdom of darkness. And you think, well, no, I'm not doing anything really wrong. I'm a really nice person. I give to charities. I'm here at church. Okay. The devil's not really that interested in you. He doesn't need to possess you either through a demon or personally because you're already on your way to hell. And he can easily influence you to do his will. And he does it through the world and through your flesh and and all of these things. And and that's what's wrong with the world today. People are being influenced. You know, you look at the world and you think, man, how, how, how could anybody do that? That's so deviant. That's so perverted. That's so weird. It's because they're taken captive by the devil and they're doing his will through the influence that he exerts in this world that he wrested from Adam and Eve. And so Judas is just the example of what it's really like to be a human being without God in your life. You're serving the devil. And it's even worse that you don't know it. And so that's what's happening here. Judas then becomes an example of why the Lord came in the first place. Our first parents freely submitted themselves to Satan. Sin and death entered and now reign on our planet. 
Men are slaves to their own nature. The devil is their master. Jesus Christ came and he defeated the devil on the cross. He redeemed the human race from slavery. His death and resurrection are effective to save anyone who ever believes in him. Judas was numbered with the twelve. He was their treasurer, actually. He participated in performing miracles and signs and wonders, but he never personally trusted Jesus Christ. He remained a slave to sin, enslaved by Satan. Now jump ahead after the supper to verse 21. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. If you read all the accounts of the Last Supper, you see that Jesus was dealing compassionately with Judas. The Lord was giving him an opportunity to repent. But wasn't Judas destined to betray the Lord? Doesn't Jesus himself say it was determined? The Bible everywhere teaches both that God is sovereign and that man is free to choose. They are simultaneously true in a way that we cannot ever fully sort out and comprehend. Judas was responsible for and accountable for his choices and actions. And so are you and I and every other member of the human race. And at the same time, God is sovereign over all things. If you try to decide between God's sovereignty on the one hand and man's free will on the other, you either make man his own master and you reduce the sovereignty of God, or you make God out to be a monster because men have no free will, and so therefore God is always forcing them to do things. Or if he doesn't force them, he leaves them alone to do things, and he doesn't save them when he could. And, and really, I've, I'm not, you know me, I'm not a, a scholar, I, I don't have a master of divinity or anything, but I've looked at these things, and, and you don't have to have a big education to figure out that, that those are the conclusions. Either man is the master of the universe and does whatever he wants and God is worried, oh, are you going to get saved? Oh, I don't know. Or you say, no, God is sovereign and, and we have no free will. Whoa. Well, then how do I get saved? Well, God chooses you. Well, what if he didn't choose me? That's his business. So if he doesn't choose me, I'm destined for hell. I'm predestined for hell. Yeah. I can't get saved because he didn't choose me. No, no way. So God created me to go to hell. In essence, yeah. And a lot of people, oh, no one believes that. Oh, hey, believe me. A lot of people believe that. A lot of people believe it and don't know they believe it. Because they're in churches that are teaching that, but they haven't seen its conclusion. And so you will never reconcile God's sovereignty and man's free will responsibility. You end up getting rid of one over the other and then thinking you're really smart. Because you lock into one and you start to examine everything from that point of view. Hey, listen. If you accept that both are true, you're not going to get doctrinally derailed by arguments of men who believe that they can solve the unsolvable. And so just take my advice and save yourself a lot of heartache. Verse 23, then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Peter didn't think it was him. He would go on to promise the Lord that he would never betray him. John didn't think it was him because he's going to lean over and ask the Lord to tell him who it is. So this really isn't self-examination. I mean, I read this at first. And I thought, oh, this is good. Here's my point, Lord. We can examine ourselves. And, and the Lord said, no, they're not examining themselves. They think it's somebody else. So what can we make of their questioning? Well, first of all, if you are saved, it doesn't mean you won't or can't fall into sin. Peter did betray the Lord, and so can I. 
I don't forfeit my salvation when I sin as a Christian. But I ought to be a little more mindful of my ability to sin. I ought to be a little bit more on my guard. The lasting Lord's Supper can remind me why Jesus came the first time. He came to set me free from my slavery to sin so that I might serve him. Why would I look back on my slavery to sin as if it were something to be desired? You know, the children of Israel did this. Once they got out into the wilderness, they started to complain and think, man, I love the garlic in, in Egypt. They couldn't find any garlic. They just had manna. And they were tired of eating bread from heaven. And they wanted garlic. Now, the garlic I can kind of understand. I smell like garlic most of the time. I have so much of it in my system. But, but the idea is that as Christians, God set us free from so many terrible sins. And, and bondages and, and things that had their grip on us. And then we look back on them sometimes longing. Oh, I, you know, I wish I could experience that again. Or, you know, what's wrong with that as a Christian? And, and I, I, I move back into that place of sin. And, and I ought to be more on guard about that. Second of all, their questioning reminds us that there are always unsaved individuals among us. They may serve and say all the right things. But we should be aware that some people have not yet been born again. Churches are full of unsaved people. I remember when I was a businessman down in Southern California, I went to a, a meeting, a Christian businessman's meeting, and you leave your card, and then they do follow-up. They, and so they came to my office, uh, and uh, I sat down with these two elderly gentlemen, and they started asking me you know, uh, if I was a Christian. And about every few minutes in our conversation, they would ask me if I was born again, if I was a Christian, when I gave my life to the Lord. Finally, I gave them my whole testimony. And I even you know, made it sound even better than it really was, I think. You know, I just embellished it as much as I could. And then when they were leaving, they say, well, just make sure that you're born again, son. And they handed me a tract to read. You know? And I thought, I'm going to kill these guys. Maybe I'm not born again because I want to kill them, you know. I was offended, but the more I thought about it, and over the years it's really come to me, that was a fantastic thing for them to do. To, to, as much as it was possible for them to challenge me, to make sure that I knew what it was to be born again, that I really was a Christian. And we don't do that too much anymore because we don't want to offend people. If I start doing that, people are going to go to another church. And, and you're, you're careful and cautious. But a lot of times, I mean, I'll, I'll talk to people... And they'll come in and I'll say, well, tell me a little about your relationship with the Lord. And they'll say things like, well, you know, I, I haven't been to church for a long time. Okay. Uh, when did you last go to church? Well, my family always went to church when I was a kid. Okay. And how do you know that you're a Christian? I was baptized as a baby. And then when I was 13 years old or 12 years old, I, I, I said some words. Okay. And, and you're starting to get a feeling that this person who says they're a Christian doesn't have the slightest idea what it means to be born again, to have a radical transformation from darkness into light. And I, I know some of you have this testimony that you were in churches for years before you really heard the gospel and gave your life to Jesus Christ. And I just want to plant a seed in all of our hearts. Some of the people that come to our church, even though they may maybe have been here for months or even years, they may not really genuinely be saved. Now, I'm not trying to scare anybody or have one big altar call, you know, where everybody raises their hands. But this is, this is a real thing. You need to know that you know that you are saved. 
And it shouldn't offend you. In fact, you should get excited if people come say, hey, tell me your testimony. Man, what a, all right. Let me tell you what I was like before and how Jesus Christ changed my life and is outfitting me for eternity. I mean, what a glorious thing to be able to share with people. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, I, I haven't really worked on my testimony. I understand you don't have it, co- you know, in a, in a fashion where you can give it quickly. I'm not asking that. Just tell me. Just we're talking here. Tell me about your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And, and, and we want to be aware of the fact that, that people need to get saved right in the church. Now, if you're a believer, one of the lessons here this morning is that you should live as though you were a bride-to-be. In love with your bridegroom. The wedding could occur at any moment. In the Jewish symbolism, we believe that the bridegroom would come unexpectedly and take his bride away and then they would have their ceremony. And in, in the symbolism, we're waiting on earth for Jesus to return to rapture the church, to take us home to heaven. And so we should live in that joyous, excited, wonderful expectation that a bride ought to have for the coming of that wedding day. And we ought to live as if it's our wedding day every day, spiritually speaking. If you're not a believer, you're probably not demon-possessed. You could be. You're certainly not possessed by Satan himself. But the devil is your master. You're a slave to sin. And you might think that's extreme, but it's not as extreme as where you're going. Because the devil, he he can just leave you alone. If you're not going to come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then he doesn't need to possess you. All he needs to do is continue to influence you to just stay that way. And you will die in your sins. There will be no lamb's blood to cover you. You'll stand on your own for yourself. And you'll find that your name was never written in the lamb's book of life. And that there's no hope for you in eternity because it is appointed unto men once to die. And after that comes judgment. And so if you're not a believer, the best you can do is look like Judas. Outwardly, probably would have been the top disciple. Treasurer, spokesman. You see throughout history, people are always concerned for Judas. Uh, Things like Jesus Christ Superstar and other, they, they always want to portray Judas in the best possible light. As if he really loved the Lord and was just trying to help Jesus become the king that he knew he could be. It's human nature to look at Judas and say he's a great guy. Because we identify with Judas. Well, I want you to identify with Judas as somebody who was under the influence and control of the devil. Because that's what an unbeliever is. And if you, if you have no testimony, if you can't tell somebody when and where and how you gave your life to Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you today, tell me about your walk with the Lord. And you said, I went to church when I was a kid. Uh, I haven't been to church for a while, but I like coming here. I mean, if you don't have some kind of joy of a personal meeting with Jesus Christ, maybe you should pray about that this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so much for these things. They're in many ways simple, in other ways deep and profound as you always are. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take your words, uh, bring them home to our hearts. Lord, for believers, that we would have a refreshed, renewed desire to be the bride of Christ. That I would believe today, Lord, 
that you're coming for me and that I would keep myself, spiritually speaking, in a state of readiness, as beautiful as I'm able to be for you because I love you and want to please you. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that's not a believer, that is in the category of Judas, they're a betrayer of you, I pray that your love would win them. You were still reaching out to Judas and you're still reaching out to them. Lord, I pray that as we close, they would come forward and that they would receive you as they would pray with some of the folks that we have down front. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.